0: Hello, and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2014 Spring Retreat. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this ChartCast is Terry Anderson, the John and Jean Denault Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his presentation is Adapt, 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 Market Responses to Climate Change and it was recorded on May 5th, 2014. Uh, Welcome. Uh, They assure me that the shock collar is on, so uh, I will quit on time. Uh, Thank you for coming in uh, out of the beautiful Palo Alto sunshine. My name is Terry Anderson. I'm the John and Jean Denault Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. Uh, I was pleased when Noel said I get to introduce myself as an economist. It's good to spare the jokes that get told about you uh i won't go through the whole litany uh the best one though is an economist is someone who's pretty good with numbers but doesn't have enough personality to be an accountant and that pretty well sums up economists Uh, uh, i've had the good fortune of uh, coming to hoover every year for the last 16 uh, getting out of the season that we call sprinter in montana that's a combination of spring and winter Uh, they had six inches of snow a week ago at our house uh, so we're more than pleased to be over at Stanford West and here at Hoover. Uh, I uh, uh, specialize in environmental issues, uh, in particular focusing on market approaches to environmental problems. Uh, Gary Leibcap, uh, another uh, fellow here at Hoover, uh, and I have a book about to be released by Cambridge University Press entitled Environmental Markets, A Property Rights Approach. Uh, we have high hopes that this will uh, become a standard in college classrooms, at least in economics, uh, and uh, really believe that it, it uh, is a, a mark of how some of the, ch- the thinking is is changing in the environmental community. Uh, I also recently, I haven't decided whether I'm going to do it, but I also was uh, just earlier, uh, late last week rather, offered a position as the visiting professor in conservative thought and policy at the University of Colorado. Now, I haven't accepted yet because I haven't found out what the life insurance policy is that comes with that, Uh, but the fact that they're willing to take an economist of my likes uh, and uh, throw me into that pit uh, suggests that at least the world is listening. Uh, And so, uh, without further ado, I'll talk a bit more about markets as it relates to climate change. Before I do though, I've, I've always wanted to do this exercise and this is my, my first opportunity. I have three questions for audience participation. And just raise your hand, it'll be quite simple. Dennis, you can use your left hand if you're right-handed. Uh, Dennis uh, back there with a the sling on. Uh, how many of you own a house or a condo? Now I knew in this crowd, pretty much 100%. Next question, how many of you have fire insurance? Same number. Now another question. final one. How many of you have ever had a fire? One, two, three. Three, four. Four fires out of uh, approximately 100 people. You know, two to four percent is a fairly standard uh, number. Now, I first saw this, uh, this uh, exercise performed by the uh, late Steven Schneider. He was a climate scientist here at Stanford who died in 2010. Stephen and I would often end up in debates with one another and in various audiences together. And uh, when he did this, he he did the same thing. And he said, he'd always do this at the end, not at the beginning. And he would say, if it makes sense to buy fire insurance, then it makes sense to buy climate insurance. And that means we can spend, we should spend whatever it takes to stop climate change. And when I first heard him do it, I later said to him, I I said, Stephen, either you don't understand what insurance is or you're being disingenuous because this is not doing what he was proposing is not about insurance. It's not about what we do when we buy insurance. Namely, we all put our money into a pool and those of us who are unfortunate get paid some and those who aren't are the ones who pay. But we all would rather none of us would ever experience this. And it's that pooling that all of us takes on and makes us raise our hand when asked, do we have fire insurance? But it doesn't follow from that, that now we should install sprinkler systems in our houses. That's a very, very different question. And it's really the question that Steve was, was alluding to when he said we should spend the money to stop climate change. Well, putting a sprinkler system in your house is like spending money to stop climate change. That is to say, if the fire does start, it's out quickly. Now, that's an interesting question. Both are interesting. And I I, think, I, I thank uh, Stephen for, for getting me to think about climate change in this way because we, we, it, it is useful to think about climate change as we think about all kinds of risks that we insure against. Climate change is about variability, new variabilities that maybe we haven't dealt with before. It's about how the risk associated with various activities are going to unfold. And climate scientists have a lot of debate about this. I'll say briefly in a few minutes what my position is. But basically, if you think of climate change like we think of other kinds of risk, then we start asking, how should we deal with risk? And one answer would be mitigate it. Put a sprinkler system in, try to make sure uh, the fire gets out. Another way is to pool the risk through insurance. And another way is to simply adapt. So we might, for example, have an evacuation plan for our house or our community. My daughter lives in a a community outside Santa Barbara, recently moved, but lived in a community that had one road in and one road out, and it was up high on the hills above Santa Barbara in very fire-prone areas. When somebody said fire... They loaded the car and got out of there. <laughs> they, were, they were adapting to living in that. They weren't changing the... They, they cleaned up around their house, too. That, that's a way of, of, uh, of trying to minim- minimize or reduce the risk. But I, I think that this, this analogy that, that Steve used, even though he drew the wrong conclusion, is, is quite a useful one. And so we might ask questions like, what, is it, what will it cost us to mitigate? And that's a big debate amongst economists. How effective will the mitigation be? How much is the sprinkler system? And will it really work when we want it to? And then, this is a really important question, uh, easily answered if you're talking about a sprinkler system in your house, who pays? Well, you pay. But when we think about the climate change issue and ask who pays, it's usually not me. (laughs) Let's have them pay, whoever that is. And that changes, of course, the calculus very, very much. So, I said I'd make clear my position on climate change if I have one. I'm neither a believer nor a denier. I suppose you might call me a, a lukewarmer. Uh Or better yet, I often like to say I'm an agnostic. It's sort of like, meh, maybe, maybe not. I don't know how to prove it. I'm not sure it's provable. So, I'm just agnostic about it. And And... As an agnostic, I I listen to the debates. I try to read as much as I can, and, you know, again, maybe yes, maybe no. When I really get down to it, I probably come a little closer to being an atheist, a denier. Uh, That is to say, when I look at the data, for example, in the past 30 years, we haven't really had quite the the warming that was predicted. We've had 0.7 degrees Fahrenheit for the last 30 years. That's about a degree in 100 years. Uh, so not, not likely to be the, the sort of estimates that we first heard about. The past 15 years have seen no increase in global temperatures, causing the IPCC, the, you'll hear me say that many times if I can spit it out, the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Cl- Climate Change, to say we're in a hiatus uh, which is an interesting term, I think. So, you know, don't worry, it's going like this, but meh, we're just taking a break. Uh, and, you know, I listen to these things, and I think, well, you know, again, maybe yes, maybe no, probably not as, as bad as, as uh, we might have one time thought. Uh, but even if you read what the IPCC and other scientists say about climate change, I think it's interesting to come back to this question of, of so how useful will the sprinklers be? How useful will this mitigation be if we do it? And the bottom line is that given where we are today with carbon in the atmosphere, even if we did everything that's called for in in many of the more draconian uh, approaches, it's not likely to have a lot of impact, at least in the lifetime of our children and and beyond. Uh, From the EPA. If emissions stopped increasing, atmospheric greenhouse gas concentrations would continue to increase and remain elevated for at least 100 years. Moreover, if we stabilize concentrations, mind you, that's a really difficult thing, and the, compos- and the composition of today's atmosphere remains steady, which would require dramatic reductions in current emissions, surface air temperatures would continue to warm. So again I get a bit agnostic because I say well we can go ahead and shoot ourselves in both feet if we want to but we're probably not going to gain much from doing it or a group of scientists uh, climate scientists recently said climate change that takes place due to increases in carbon dioxide concentration is largely irreversible for 1000 years. So I wrote down here as thinking about it in the, this, is, this is, in other words, think of it in the context of the fire example. If you install fire suppression systems, the likelihood that uh, of a house fire will be reduced in the foreseeable future 1,000 years from now. Well, I don't think you're going to run out and put in sprinkler systems based on those kinds of discussions. So once again, I say maybe yes, maybe no, lukewarm, uh, agnostic. So let's just Take it as given, and we have plenty of debates here around Hoover about whether it is or whether it isn't. But I just want you to accept that it is, and and uh, I want to now point out how things are changing, even amongst people who think it is and think it is uh, by and large pretty dramatically. Recently, the fourth report of the IPCC was released, entitled "Climate Change 2014: Impacts." adaptation and vulnerability it was released in April and when it came on Monica and I were watching the evening news and there were the standard pictures of wildfires and horrible rains and hurricanes and and if it, you know I hadn't read the report yet and I'm thinking more of the same it, it you know don't really need to report read it it's it's going to say what what all the others have said and I figured except that it had the word adaptation in the title I I figured it would go much as the others have which more or less have said uh, if the world gets warmer sea levels rise rainfall patterns uh, change significantly farmers developers consumers and so on won't do anything now as an economist who believes that people really do respond to incentives and prices and all kinds of other signals I didn't ever think that was likely to be the case but you're my age or so, you may remember Bob Dylan, times they are a-changing. Well, even for the IPCC, they're changing. The title again said, Climate Change Impacts Adaptation and Vulnerability. This is from Chris Field, the chairman of one of the panels. A really big breakthrough in this report is the new idea of thinking about managing climate change, not mitigating, not getting rid of it, managing it, living with it. His co-chair Investment in better preparation can pay dividends both for the present and the future. Adaptation can play a key role in decreasing the risks of climate change. This is, is an enormous change in the words coming out of the IPCC. And I think that they they really are, are, are important to, for us to absorb and think about how we are changing the way we think about and adapt to Climate change, if you just read the press release, and I did the word count in it, mitigation which showed up through every single previous one and only showed up, appeared once. Adaptation, this is in about a page and a half press release, showed up 12 times. Over and over the report says adapt, 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 hence the title of my presentation. So. Adaptation is really an important aspect of, of, of what's happening with climate change. And, and, and it's showing up in some data other than, and, uh, in other than just temperatures. Uh, here I want to f- focus just for a moment on what are the costs, uh, estimated costs of climate change. Okay? So from 2006 when the uh, so-called Stern report was released, And the estimate at that time was that climate change would cost 5% of global income per year, now and forever. 5% of global income per year, now and forever. You think about that and you think, oh my goodness. You know, you listen to Steve Schneider, you say, we had better do something now. How can we possibly afford 5% now and forever into the future? Today, the new IPCC report says that there will only be a two point five percent reduction in global income by the end of the century, not every year, not forever, in one hundred years, a two and a half percent decrease and that was the high estimate they asked the low est- or the, sorry the mean estimate was one point one percent. Let me put that or let me use matt Ridley who 's more articulate than I. He captured it this way, even if you pile pessimism upon pessimism, assuming relatively little decarbonization, much global enrichment, and higher climate sensitivity than now looks possible, leading to more rapid climate change, you still, on the worst estimate, hurt the world economy in a century by only about as much as it grows every year or two. All of a sudden, you've got to start saying, "Does it make sense to really jump off the cliff?" Or back to my house fire analogy, even if the risks of the fire are really much higher than you really think they are, the benefits of installing fire suppression system will save you over a hundred years about as much as your income would increase next year. Well, again, are you going to spend that much money? To save it over 100 years, most people don't make investments in that way. Again, unless somebody else is paying for it. So everything I read, including the estimates of of just what's likely to happen to temperatures, suggests that something's different in the way we think about climate change today. And part of that has to do... Now, I would even make it a stronger statement. Most of that has to do with the fact that we as human beings aren't like the farmer who says, oh, well, rain has changed, I'll keep doing what I used to do. Or like the developer who says, this is the kind of land I used to develop, I'll keep doing that, even though it's now more in a drought-prone area, more in a fire uh, uh, hazard zone. So we are making changes, and we're changing in response to many market signals. Before I talk about some of those market signals, I want to tell you what I'm not talking about when it comes to markets. Often when economists talk about markets as they apply to climate change, immediately the discussion centers on cap and trade. Centers on the idea that we'll put a limit on the amount of carbon emissions and we will then allow people who get the the permits to emit carbon, to trade those permits, something that the uh, EU did, and that that will then give people an incentive to reduce carbon. They can sell their permits, make money in the process. Uh, I mentioned the book that Gary Leibcap and I uh, have finished. Uh, we have a, a, a long section looking at how these carbon markets have worked. Well, they've collapsed in in the European Union, and they've collapsed in large part because... Governments can't resist giving things away. It's really what they do best, uh, and especially, again, if someone else is paying. And so the European Union has continued to hand out credits, especially to people who are investing in alternative energy. Now, you might first say, well, that's really a good thing. That, you, know, you invest in a solar panel uh, company or a wind generation company. We'll give you a few credits to give you a boost. Well, but the more of these credits you put into the market, the more people who got them in the first place start saying, wait a minute, my, you've just devalued, you've deflated the value of my credits that you gave me. So that's one problem, and it's one reason they aren't working sure. as well as might be expected. There's another problem, and it's it, it, it captured well in a in a quote from Jeff Immelt, uh, CEO of General Electric. Uh, I was at a, a conference at, in Santa Barbara a few years back, sponsored by the Wall Street Journal, and Kim Strassel, a good friend, uh, invited me, and she said, you're here to throw bombs. Uh, you know, a lot of these people come to this, and they'll be, oh, yeah, yeah, they'll all be uh, all in harmony. And she said, you know, lob them out there whenever you like. Well, Jeff Immelt gave the first speech, and he, he, he gave this plea for, for why we should have carbon markets, carbon uh, cap and trade. And then he said, you know, we're really good environmental citizens, those of us at GE. We've invented corkscrew light bulbs, and, and we have much more efficient jet engines and so on and so forth. Uh, so, we should get them for free, and then the rest should be sold and uh sort of looked at him and then he uh, and then he said uh in response to something said, "If you're not at the table, you're on the menu, and so my first bomb was to stand up and say. Uh, Mr. Immelt, I know you spend a lot of time at the table. You've been to the White House. You've got an office uh, with people in it on K Street. I'm sitting at a table with some Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who are going to be on the menu. Well, he didn't really like that comment. Uh, And there were a few, as reported in the Wall Street Journal the next day, a few expletives. Uh, But it really points out the difficulty of cap and trade. Jeff Immelt wants them free, and he wants, you know, this side wants to have them handed to them. This side wants to have them given to them. Or, or wants to, this side wants them to pay for, and, and these markets are really not going to come to pass except on very small kind of boutique-y kinds of ways. Another response to a supposed market uh, approach to climate change is to put carbon taxes uh, on in place. And, you know, whether you believe that carbon taxes would affect uh, people's behavior, uh, that I believe. I mean, you know, California has a much higher gasoline tax than Montana, and every time I go to the pump, I notice it. And if I lived here uh, permanently, I would probably adjust my driving behavior and adjust the kind of car I have. So carbon taxes would make people respond. But note when people call for carbon taxes, they always say we want those carbon taxes to be revenue neutral, revenue neutral in two ways. They should hit the rich more than they hit the poor, and they uh, they shouldn't generate more income uh for government to spend they should offset income now anybody in this room who thinks that you can find somebody who really will vote for a revenue neutral carbon tax you're crazy Uh, we in montana do not have a sales tax because every time it comes up and and the the legislature says don't worry we'll eliminate income tax and replace it with sales tax we're even in montana smart enough to know that ain't going to happen they are not interested in revenue neutrality so I don't, I don't want to talk anymore about cap and trade and, and taxes. I want to talk about real markets. Uh, and I want to talk about just how difficult it is to keep a good market down. I have a, a my most recent book is a book called Tapping Water Markets. And uh, this book is really about how hard it is to keep markets from popping up when there are entrepreneurial opportunities. And so I want to talk a little bit about where there are some market changes occurring and markets note Don't usually make big adjustments. They make small ones. And so we don't always see these, but you don't have to look very hard to find them. Let me first talk about real estate. And here's my financial advice for you for the day. If you own land in wine country in California, put it on the market and buy where we live in Montana. Now, you laugh at that and say, oh, yeah, sure, you're right. Well, I don't, you know, uh, again, I want to put in a disclaimer. You can't hold me accountable for your finances if you follow what I say, but that's true for most economists. But study after study show that if climate keeps changing the way it's predicted, we're going to see big changes in where wine is grown. We're not going to do without wine, heaven forbid, uh, and we're not going to do without good wine. We'll find other places to produce it. Conservation International and the National Academy of Sciences undertook a huge study with all kinds of variables in it trying to estimate just what will happen with climate change. And they came up in general saying that areas suitable for viticulture will decrease 25 to 73% in the major wine-producing regions by 2050. That comes pretty close to selling your wine uh, country estate. Uh, And then I I just started looking around at, at headlines. This is... This is uh, from the New York Times. British wine benefits as climate changes. Uh, First paragraph. For more than a decade, Matthew Elzinger ran his own vineyard in the western Lorraine Valley of France. But this year, just as he was gaining an international reputation for his dry and crisp uh, wines, Mr. Mr. Elzinger sold the vineyard and moved on to an emerging wine region, the south of England. Or the headline, I love this one, this is how I said buy in Montana, from Bay Area Biz Talk, headline, wine from Wyoming, question mark, how Yellowstone and Yukon Bordeaux will steal Napa's crown. Uh, eh, you know, it's not happening yet. There aren't. Don't buy Montana wine, I can assure you of that. Uh, but but the point is, these changes are beginning to occur. The, 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 there's other evidence I found of... Of wine moving from France into Germany. Now, when markets adjust, as I said, they don't just close down Napa and open up the Yellowstone Valley. What happens is one person, like the person I just quoted, sells a bit of land there and buys a bit elsewhere. Now, you want to sell early if you've got the valuable Napa stuff, and you want to buy early if you're going to buy in Montana. But what markets do is slowly keep chipping away at these kinds of opportunities it's hard to keep a good market down and real estate markets over the world begin to start showing little changes as a result of climate data now come back to why we don't see more change in 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 closing but the point here is just to to emphasize that there are these changes occurring about three years ago there was a, a meeting here at Stanford at the woods institute I participated put on by the Nature Conservancy and the Woods Institute. And the whole discussion focused on what the Nature Conservancy was going to do with lands on which it has perpetual conservation easements. So you've got this, you know, you want to save the yellow-breasted, blue-billed, green-footed warbler, and it lives in this area, and you get your easement in this area, and the climate changes and the warbler moves here. Uh Uh-oh. You've got a perpetual easement. What can you do about it? The Nature Conservancy is interested and how to change the rules regarding perpetuity so they can transfer those easements to other pieces of land. This is, this is good real estate thinking on their part, and it's the kind of adaptation that I think we're going to see more and more of. You heard Victor this morning talk about water in California. California water authorities warn that you're likely to face, quote, more frequent water shortages, extreme weather events, flooding, and shifts in the growing season. Yeah, probably, probably. So what are we going to do about it? Again, mitigation? I think not. But here's a case, and and I might take a slight exception with one of the things Victor said earlier today. I like to say it's not that we're running out of water. It's that we're running out of cheap water. That's the problem. We all have grown up thinking water is cheap, cheaper than dirt, and that we ought to have it supplied to us for free, whether we have almonds or whether we want to live in the Bay Area and not take baths in our gray water. Uh, All of us think it should be cheap. That is changing, tapping water markets. More and more, we see markets begin to take uh, a a hold and affect how we use our water resources. Uh, Carson Bruno and I have a piece that was in Hoover Digest a few weeks back on, on hydraulic fracturing. We have a new piece coming out, and part of it talks about what water markets can do. It costs about $400,000 now to get the water for a fracking well in North Dakota. $400,000. If you can cut your fracking well water demands, that means more profits. And those kinds of markets are beginning to show up. A couple more examples, and I'll close for Q&A. Finance, another place where fascinating changes are taking place. Some of you will know far more about derivatives than I ever will. But weather derivatives are a way in which people are adapting to climate change. Whether whether you are agnostic, a denier, or a believer, people are taking actions to adjust to the, the, the vagaries of weather. For example, ski runs now routinely purchase weather derivatives. They pay an amount up front in some cases, and they say if the snow level is less than 100 inches, let's say, We want to be paid so much for every inch below 100. Well, somebody has to take the other side of that derivative, right? They have to say, well, for every inch above 100, you pay us. Well, if you are Big Sky Montana and you have a banner year like we did because we have huge amounts of snow and you bought a weather derivative, then you're going to be paying some. If you're Squaw Valley... (laughs) You're going to be happy you took advantage of this kind of a financial market to smooth out the sort of variances that occur. Beginning to see weather derivatives used by beer producers, guess what? If we have less sunshine, people don't go to the beach as much. They don't play golf as much. And that means they don't drink as much beer. You might be worried about that. If you're the beer or soft drink producer, you're worried about disruptions in supplies. Once again, you can buy derivatives as one way, but there are many other uh, kinds of financial instruments that allow you to smooth out the kind of variance that, that is really what climate change is. And now I'll conclude with insurance. It's a little tougher one, buying insurance. Buying insurance requires that the insurance company be able to create some sort of actuarial tables. And Charlotte Singleton, we were talking about this just beforehand, and she said... Climate change is like golf. And she pulled me up short. I had to say, I wonder what she's going to say next, but she got it right. She said, you know, when you go out there and hit the ball, there are a lot of variables there. How high in elevation is the golf course? Uh, Which way is the wind blowing? How high is the humidity? Do you have a slice or a hook? Uh, You got to take all these, you know, if you're going to predict where that ball is going to go, it is a really complex model. Some people do it better than others, and they're called pros. Well, uh, the, the IPCC recognizes the golf analogy in a sense. IPCC, in its recent report, now says it cannot predict with the, which specific impacts of climate change, such as drought, storms, floods, will hit which areas. This is a big change again. They were all into saying, you know, your backyard is going to be flooded, yours is going to be dry. Now they're starting to say it's a lot like golf. Uh, The New Scientist, a magazine that reports on this, said the scale and timing of many regional impacts and even the form of some now appear uncertain. Big surprise there. Uh, But all this makes it much more difficult to get insurance markets up and running. Yet even there, insurance markets are beginning to show ways of, of adjusting to this variation I'm talking about, which is what climate change is. There's a company called Weatherflow, Inc., they blanketed the southeastern part of the United States with private weather stations, so they don't depend on the U.S. Uh, weather Service. They put these small weather stations out there, and you know, and most of us can even, you know, you can go to any catalog, uh, you know, and and buy yourself a, a home weather station if you want it. Measure the wind, the precip, and all the, those kinds of things. They've blanketed these, and and they're collecting huge amounts of data. And interestingly, one of the uses of these data is to allow another company called Risk Management Solutions to sell what are called cat bonds, catastrophe bonds. How do these work? Well, you much like a derivative, you say, if the wind exceeds a certain speed, I want to I buy a bond that says, if the wind exceeds a certain speed, I get paid. doesn't matter whether my house blows down, my roof comes off, I get paid. Now, you can imagine. If you're living in a windy area and you want to get paid every time the wind exceeds 20 miles an hour, that's going to be a really expensive bond. But if you're worried about that that outlier, the kinds of variations, the catastrophic changes that, that are associated with some of climate change, those bonds are a matter of dealing with the risk, of pooling the risks. So I go out and say, I'll buy a bond, and if the wind exceeds 140 miles an hour, whether my roof stays on or not, I get paid. This market is beginning to develop, and it's, it's like the ski area example. It provides a way in which we can respond to climate change. These kinds of responses, this human adaptability, are what are reducing day by day the draconian kinds of predictions that the IPC put forward. They're reducing day by day what the likelihood, not of climate change necessarily, but of what will happen if it occurs. They're changing just how costly it will be because we as human beings, especially driven by markets, respond. There are entrepreneurs out there who day after day are looking for these kinds of operations. You say variants to a person in the hedge, hedge fund markets and they say, bring it on. I want to be part of it. And so over and over, entrepreneurs are beginning to ask, can I analyze where the wine won't be produced and where it will be produced. These are people who are acting not because they read the IPCC report, not because they're either deniers or lukewarmers or believers. They're acting because they're entrepreneurial potentials here. I taught a class here in the GSB, I pioneered a class called Environmental Entrepreneurship, and I, I used to say I'd have to beat the kids over the head, young people over the head, to get them to not think about this some uh, starry-eyed environmental class. And I would say, go out and pick up your your basket of of finance uh, skills that you learned and your accounting skills and marketing and bring them into this class and let's apply. And it was a few years back, so we weren't quite into the kinds of examples I'm giving you here. But it's that kind of entrepreneurial spirit that's out there and is going to create adapt, adapt, adapt. Entrepreneurs in short... Don't just talk about the weather; they do something about it. Thank you. We take a few questions. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening. For more information about the Hoover Institution, please visit Hoover.org.